So then, 7.33, the Australian health minister's call for people to stop hoarding supermarket supplies, saying this is the time to be our best selves and to let our better angels prevail. As the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Australia has risen to 81, we have Professor Sanjaya Sananyaki, infectious disease expert at Australia National University on the line. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Now, amid entry restrictions... Are you surprised to have seen this outbreak reach this level already in Australia? No, I, I'm not. I think the the whole idea behind entry restrictions, it initially at the start, it was to prevent an outbreak. But I think the reality is that these are only slowing the outbreak. So it was it was going to occur, but it probably delayed things and allowed a better preparation. So what would have led to COVID-19 getting into a country that can, in theory, protect itself from the ocean? Is it just the nature of modern travel and the fact that people could have got in without showing symptoms? Look, absolutely. As you say, you know, over a billion people traverse international borders every year. So uh, air travel is more frequent than it's ever been. And if one is targeting a particular area that has an outbreak and it isn't outside those borders, then a travel restriction may work. But as you well know, now that the outbreak is spread to uh, around 60 countries, it was always going to be very difficult to prevent it from coming to Australia. And of course, here in South Korea, we might uh, not be surrounded in all sides by water, but uh, given the nature of the North Korea border, we in theory, might have protected ourselves uh, as well. Uh, And, of course, there was a lot of discussion here about whether we should ban more visitors. Um, Foreigners who have visited Korea have also been restricted from entering Australia, though, uh, since Thursday last week. What led to that regulation? Because here we've just had so many tests and it's driven that number up, whereas in other countries there are maybe concerns that they've not carried out nearly as many tests and there may be more people infected that just haven't been unveiled officially. Well, exactly. And I think the government is only going on the the confirmed cases figures. Uh, I mean, China, South Korea, Italy, Iran being being the top four. But as you correctly say, there uh, could well be countries that haven't got as good surveillance systems that uh, aren't, aren't picking up lots of cases and cases may still get in through those countries. And the restriction will be reviewed within this week, as far as we're aware. Do, do you think the government is likely to amend that ban, extend it, strengthen it? Not sure. I, look, I honestly am not sure, but I, I, if I had to bet, I'd probably say they would extend uh, extend it for a few more days at least. And what pattern of infections are we seeing in Australia? Uh, Any particular super spreader events or concerns of a super spreader event or are they fairly scattered? Look, it's it's fairly scattered. Uh, All states and territories except uh, the ACT where I am, where Canberra is, and the Northern Territory have had cases. Uh, We've had about 40 in New South Wales, which is the probably the most populous uh, state in Australia. And in terms of uh, demographics, we've seen uh, a fairly widespread in terms of uh, an eight-month-old baby in in South Australia and uh, older people as well in their 80s. So a real mixture. Yeah, I mean, we in Korea have this Shincheonji sect 
wild card factor. The, the sect has a lot of younger members. So when we have a lot of younger infections, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what the pattern's likely to be around the world. So is it generally older people getting infected or being reported infected in Australia? Uh, oh, look, it, it, is a, it is a mixture. And uh, I think, as you know, everyone is susceptible to this. It's just that uh, most people will have a very mild illness and may not even seek medical attention. It's the older people who are getting the more severe illness and therefore are getting hospitalised and tested. But now with increased awareness of this outbreak, there's more testing being done and people of all ages are being identified. Right. So, so this is an interesting point. Do you think it's fair to say, if we ever look at a country right now and, and look at the age of those who are being infected, and if it tends to be at the older end of the spectrum, it probably reflects that their testing has not been as extensive. In other words, uh, like you say, people with milder cases just have not been tested in the first place if they're at the younger age. That's right. That's, that's what we believe, and that's why we talk about this mortality rate, which is, uh, you know, 2-3% being lower because there are the cases we know about are the tip of the iceberg. Now, having said that, the World Health Organization and the, the Chinese, who had a joint mission, they put out a paper and said, no, that's not the case. We don't think there is a, uh, an iceberg as such. We don't think that there are cases in China we're not seeing. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, just as an aside, and I guess this is not in, in your area of expertise, but you, you'd you have to say there's not much incentive for a country like Korea in the future to come out and report with great widespread testing accuracy the cases because uh, you, you end up being stigmatised and uh, economically uh, affected. Uh, can, can you just touch on that briefly? I mean, are, are you noticing... Um, significant social changes, even beyond the almost light-hearted reporting we're seeing about toilet rolls being sold en masse in Australia. Right. Okay. Look, I guess going back to your first point, just about the uh, people's uh, country's behaviour when they've been sort of labelled at the centre of an epidemic. I mean, that that is one reason why the World Health Organisation is very reluctant to. Uh, talk about countries imposing travel bans on other countries because they're worried that uh, certain governments may not be as forthcoming with information because they're worried about consequences and people within those countries might secretly, furtively try and escape to other countries uh, and therefore put other people at risk because they might be carrying an infection. And then going back to your other point, yeah, look, in Australia, there is certainly a sense of concern and it's manifested with uh, panic buying, particularly of toilet paper. Now, this infection only causes 3% of diarrhoea. Uh, so 3% of cases cause, are associated with diarrhoea. So it's all very odd. And it has been uh, mocked and uh, uh, parodied in, in social media a lot. But it certainly is a sign of concern. It seems to be t- a typical manifestation, though, of uh, flock behaviour, doesn't it? Um, th- that you just see other people rushing to get something and you worry you're not going to have that and perhaps for an extended period of time so you try and stock up and, and it's not australia alone is, is is there any particular reason for this oh look i think just uh genuine fear because we really as as a global community despite having sars and swine flu and ebola it, they they never really reach the uh extent uh, of establishment that uh, 
COVID-19 has. And I think people, I think, seeing what happened in China with the lockdown and now what's happening in the northern part of Italy and thinking, gosh, we might have to stay at home for a few weeks. We better get some supplies. Yeah. We could spend a lot more time discussing which supplies would be more useful than toilet paper, but we'll leave that um, conversation <laughs> for people's minds to work out, I think, and perhaps for another day on our show. The the um, the other thing here is where we're heading with this outbreak. As, as an infectious disease expert, do you subscribe even remotely to the higher-end expectations that we, we, we could see a significant portion even of the Australian population infected, let alone the world population? Look, it's definitely on the cards, and it is. I do not have that crystal ball. This outbreak is, is evolving all the time, and uh, certainly a, a senior Hong Kong public health professor a couple of weeks ago was saying up to 60% of the world's population could get infected. So, uh, so anything is possible, and I think in terms of a government's pandemic planning, we have to plan for the worst case scenario so in fact if it's much less much better than that we're covered even though uh, a respected healthcare system like australia's can it cope if if we do reach even the lower end of the high estimates i.e 20 percent of the population yeah, look, I mean, 20% of the population, that, that's a lot. And uh, I think any health system, no matter how developed, will, will struggle to cope. Uh, and, and there will certainly be a tipping point, whether that's 10% or 20%, uh, we, we will have to see. Yeah. But what do you do in that situation? Do you repurpose hospitals? Do you do what China did and try and hastily build temporary facilities? Do you take hotels and turn them into hospitals? Because presumably it's just a basic issue of having enough beds that are not in contact with uh, other people who need treatment that are not infected. Yeah, so you make some very good points. So if the existing uh, public hospital beds aren't sufficient to look after not only uh, the COVID-19 patients, but all the other patients who normally are in hospitals for other reasons, then we have to look uh, at alternative al- alternate facilities. And uh, I'm sure that the government is looking into that. But of course, it's not just the alternate facilities, be it uh, a hall or a sports stadium, etc. It's making sure you have enough staff to look after the patients as well. And that's uh, another interesting challenge. And I note that the NHS uh, or in, in the UK, they've talked about even bringing retired NHS staff back for this, for this outbreak. I don't quite know how they're going to do that, but that's one thing they've uh, suggested or proposed. There is still a, a sceptical voice that prevails in the media and among quarters of the social media groups that I that I see that those who think that this is all much ado about nothing it's difficult to take that argument too far because we've already seen more than 100,000 cases worldwide and nearly 4,000 deaths it's it's obviously not nothing but this is most similar to SARS we've been told is a virus and SARS effectively fizzled out uh, a few months after coming to the fore is it not possible that by this summer this COVID-19 virus or the virus that causes it may also fizzle out for want of a better medical term it look it, it could i guess there are so many possibilities it's could and as you correctly say sars in 2004 just disappeared and we've never seen a case in humans again so that's quite a, a bizarre phenomenon that i just can't work out uh but it is 
we look at the uh, Spanish flu, you had a very mild first wave, but then came a much worse second wave. So that's also a possibility with this. And of course, like swine flu, this could become a, a seasonal infection and therefore the uh, in the coming in coming years and therefore the presence of a, a vaccine will be very useful so and in terms of the seriousness of this if it stops today we don't see another case as you correctly say a lot of damage has already been done so i don't think this was ever much ado about nothing right D- just quickly based on your infectious disease expertise i'm just curious whether it would be more likely to behave like SARS or more likely to behave like a, one of those influenza strains that you mentioned. I mean, for example, 1918, this H1N1 fear that we've seen raised repeatedly in recent years, just common sense or basic knowledge would tell me it would be more likely to do what SARS did than, than what um, some of these other swine flu type strains do. What, what's your feeling, though? Look, possibly, but at the same time, there, uh, because you're right, SARS is a coronavirus like, like this one, and it, it could fizzle out, but you, you also have to realise there are actually four coronaviruses that cause about 20% of the common cold that are predominantly seasonal and have been around for the last uh, 40 or 50 years. At least two of right. them have been, and the other two have been more recently found. So it is, on the basis of that, it is quite possible that this coronavirus could do the same thing. Right. Well, thank you for making that point as well. And that was, of course, one of the reasons why at the start of this outbreak, there was some reporting that this is just like a slightly more serious version of the the common cold. And then at the other end of the spectrum, this is more or less like SARS, and we're still trying to get the full picture. Thank you very much, Professor Sananyaki. Good to have you with us on the line. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Speaking there to Professor Sanjaya Sananyaki, infectious disease expert at Australian National University.